Hey, Radically Genuine listeners, we have an urgent announcement before we start today's episode. At this pivotal moment, Western societies are entrenched in a profound mental health crisis, partly influenced by how we understand and treat human suffering. Common and expected reactions to stressful events are being pathologized, inaccurately categorized as psychiatric disorders, and haphazardly treated with psychiatric drugs. Alarmingly, Patients are frequently not informed about the potential risks linked to these drugs, and medical misinformation is rampant. This absence of informed consent represents a serious ethical violation, depriving individuals of their fundamental right to make fully informed decisions regarding their mental health care. Industrial deception amplifies the perceived benefits of these drugs while downplaying their well-documented harms. As a result, adverse drug reactions and undiagnosed health conditions are frequently misconstrued as indicators of deteriorating mental health, trapping individuals in a cycle of enduring disability. The pharmaceutical industry has hijacked our collective understanding of mental health, molding medical professionals into legalized drug dealers through their training and influence. Additionally, mental health therapists are widely influenced by industry deception, political ideology, and shifting cultural norms. Who can we rely on for compassionate, ethical, and unbiased mental health care information? Where can we find the accurate resources needed to make informed decisions about our health care? What alternative explanations or treatments may exist? We're embarking on a bold mission to revolutionize mental health care. Our objective is straightforward, to connect individuals and families with ethical health care practitioners who respect your personal values and champion your right to medical freedom and informed consent. Our larger goal is to provide free access to science-based health information, empowering you to make informed decisions. We cannot consent unless we are informed. By fearlessly challenging the established norms of the medical authority, and the psychiatric industry, we're transparently revealing the limitations and potential harms of psychiatric diagnoses and treatments. We're rallying an army of supporters to help us reach our target of $150,000. This investment is pivotal as we will provide the initial funding necessary to launch our online platform and kickstart our programmatic initiatives. Together, we can save and transform lives. I've started the Conscious Clinician Collective, and you can visit theccollective.org to join or to make a donation to this important cause. We need an army of supporters. We must unite. Please join or donate. Visit theccollective.org. The link is in our show summary. In therapy, Radically Genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our position on antidepressant drugs is clear, rarely prescribed, and informed consent. But Dr. McFillin, that wasn't my experience. It worked for me. It saved my life. On today's podcast, Dr. McFillin responds to the anecdotal reports of antidepressant benefits. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. 
Brother Sean in the studio today. No Kelly on this Super Bowl Sunday. Welcome, Sean. Good morning. Go birds. Go birds. If you're if you're in the Philadelphia region in the United States, Pennsylvania, you understand exactly what that means as the Philadelphia Eagles are playing in the Super Bowl tonight. When this podcast is actually released, we will know the outcome. However, something a little bit more serious today. As many people know, I'm quite vocal about antidepressant harm. And I consistently get responses on Twitter with what I believe are legitimate questions. And I want to be able to answer these legitimate questions today from a scientific standpoint. Antidepressants have been on the market for over 30 years. And at this point, millions and millions of people have taken them. And the legitimate question is, from an anecdotal perspective, doctors will say, hey, listen, I prescribe these drugs and my patients are reporting that they help. I get responses on Twitter, very similar. They've saved my life. They were really critically important for me during a difficult time. And so the question then is posed to me, how can this be the case? Dr. McPhillan, if you're saying that these drugs are harmful, how can they be so widely prescribed by highly educated people? Should I not trust my physician? Even today on Twitter, I got a question. Are you saying that my physician is incompetent? These are, these are medical professionals who've dedicated their lives to helping people. Why should I believe you and what you're posting over my trusted doctor? And those are good questions because I don't want to come across on my social media or this podcast that I'm somehow unhinged and moving so far outside the bounds of science that people can't trust my opinions or my viewpoints. So, Sean, it's a legitimate question for me to answer. And I want to take time on a podcast to speak through this. Which one do you want to tackle first? Okay. Let's, let's just start with, do antidepressants work? Okay. So the question is, from, from my perspective, one, what does, the, what does the clinical trial data initially show? Because anecdotal evidence is potentially dangerous, right? It's how a lot of information can spread and become urban legend. And you don't want to make critical health decisions, especially one around a psychoactive substance involving the brain based on anecdotal evidence. That's why you first should run very sound placebo-controlled trials, blinded. And as many people know, my decades of looking at this research because I had to resolve a conflict that I was experiencing professionally. It was from what I was told versus what I was observing. If antidepressants really were helpful, then I would have seen in clinical practice, in front of me, a strong clinical response to antidepressants. Because the prevailing recommendation throughout the time of both my training and my clinical work 
has been if someone is experiencing a moderate to severe depressive episode, you should combine antidepressants with therapy. So it's not as if people were being provided drugs without another recommendation and they were just getting better so I never see them. This has been part of clinical guidelines in my field for quite some time. And so with so many clients in front of me reporting adverse consequences to taking these drugs, or so many people just saying, I'm told to take this, but it's not really, I'm not really getting any better, or simply saying, well, possibly, maybe. I had to resolve that conflict professionally. Now, the adverse consequences are quite clear, well-documented, and they're certainly published by the pharmaceutical industry around the drug. So we have to look at the group who says, they've helped me. And it, and it really comes down to a phenomenon that does not get enough attention in Western culture, and that is the placebo response. So, Sean, I want you to imagine what someone might be going through at a real low point in their life. Mm-hmm. They're, they're depressed. It's low energy, really low mood. Life might be so painful, they may can be considering whether it's even worth living. Mm-hmm. And you're in a culture that says, hey, listen, this could be a medical condition. A medical condition that could be treated like any other medical condition. We have a drug that can make you feel better regardless of your life circumstances, regardless of what may be happening, regardless of the problems that you might have to face, the tragedies that you're experiencing, the challenges that exist. We have a pill that can restore your energy, your mood. Dull that pain. And then allow you to be able to face what life is bringing. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a powerful promise. Just the idea of that in itself when you're talking about mental health is certainly um, one that can create a reaction in the individual. Hope. Oh, I, I can feel better. My pain is validated. It's not me. This is a medical disorder. This is a medical condition. And I can see my doctor and it can help me. That in itself is powerful. So what is the placebo response? What do you know about it? Um, It's just a natural improvement of a situation. And it happens in almost all medical fields. So the lack of any medical intervention, Mm -hmm. but the belief that you're getting the medical intervention. So it could be some inert treatment. But the idea you believe that you're getting the intervention is enough for us to heal ourselves, to improve, which is much more powerful in pain and mental health. Got it. Yeah. And it's, there's a percentage that that happens, right? There is. I mean, traditionally in a lot of medical interventions, you're going to see somewhere between 30 to 40% of people just get better from a placebo response. Yeah, I remember 30% being that magic number. But in pain and mental health, it's actually been higher. So this is where it's powerful because we're dealing so much with the mind-body connection. 
And that is a powerful, powerful connection. The idea of hope, of beliefs, that you're getting something to improve your condition creates a response. And that's why randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trials are the gold standard within scientific inquiry. And so it's very clear when you go through the research literature that these trials, it was nearly impossible to distinguish the placebo group from the antidepressant group. That means in these trials, the placebo group improved to the same degree as the antidepressant group. In many, the placebo group outperformed the antidepressant group. Drug companies are not going to publish null results. Right? They have no they have no incentive when a trial doesn't work out and no obligation and no obligation to publish that. So they certainly understood that they had to create the trials in a specific way in order to maximize any difference between the placebo group and the antidepressant group. I think we've talked about that in some other podcasts. But what I want to talk about today is why people are going to report that they're getting better. And it's called an amplified placebo response. And this is why blind was broken in the clinical trials. An amplified placebo response means that the group who got the antidepressant drug knew they were getting the medical intervention. They knew they were getting the medical intervention because it's a psychoactive substance. Anyone who has taken antidepressants or other psychiatric drugs, they know it in their body almost immediately. It is changing your consciousness. It's affecting your physiology, some more than others. There are certainly some people out there who will say, I don't really feel that much different. So it ranges. The response to medical interventions can be quite varied amongst the human population. But many people knew that they were getting the medical intervention. And so it's that amplified placebo response combined right, with the experience of change within the body. Now, it's so important not to, not to minimize that because in the short term, if somebody is really suffering and then there's, an, there's a connection that occurs within a medical intervention, right? Medical interventions, especially in mental health, they're, they're, they're provided by another human being. So even the act of naming it, you have major depressive disorder and I have a drug that can make you feel better. That idea in itself is a powerful, powerful idea mm-hmm. that can change a way a person experiences their life. So I do not want to diminish that or minimize that. Now, imagine, imagine that that drug is marketed as an anti-something that's adversive. Here's an anti-pain drug. Here's an anti-anxiety drug. Here's an antidepressant. So when you talk about amplified placebo responses, you're also then talking about the power of language and association. You mean I'm going to take something and you're already telling me what it's supposed to do, potentially. It's going to take away my depression. It's antidepressant 
as complicated as the human experience is and why people may feel depressed. You can get a pill that's anti that. Think about those powerful associations. I'm going to come up with an anti-gravity pill for weight loss. Already done, right? <laughs> power. This is the power of marketing. So I don't want to... I don't want to communicate the message that you know, your doctor is incompetent. But I will tell you that most physicians are working within a system where they're limited in their access to information. They're overworked. And the amount of time that they could actually spend for each individual patient is limited. Not just from the examination, but also your opportunities for outside exploration and research of what is the most innovative, safe, and effective treatments. That is an unfortunate reality in the United States healthcare system. Let's respond to that doctor component because I think we have enough history right now where we can bring in another uh, situation where that trust was placed in your doctor and it led to a crisis here in the United States, one being the opiate crisis, right? It's a good, good example. That was one where doctors knew for a very long time that opiates were highly addictive and um, should not be prescribed to their patients. But yet they did so because they were under the belief that this new opiate drug was non-addictive. And that's what the data showed. So they started prescribing it widely. Very similar to antidepressants. Antidepressants were promoted as non-habit forming. So there was this idea you can take this drug and it's and it's safe. You can take it even long term. Although we didn't have we still don't have clinical trials that support that. It's the idea what becomes urban legend. Okay? So what doctors are seeing in their in their clinical practice, let's say, I mean, we know 80% of these drugs are prescribed in primary care outside the specialty of psychiatry. So we're seeing it not only in from your pediatrician to your family doctor, but we're seeing this in OBGYN, internal medicine, and neurology. The, the drugs are widely prescribed as if they're safe and effective, but we don't have that data to suggest that. And we know now, after decades of promoting these drugs as non-habit forming, that those who've been taking these drugs for an extended period of time have to deal with the withdrawal effects and it's quite, quite dangerous. And we don't have clear protocols on how to taper off those drugs. But let's get back to the point of this amplified placebo response. So if you are prescribing in these settings, uh, there is a, a good chance, maybe somewhere between 35 to 55% of the clients who are provided that drug will present with a placebo reaction to it. Yeah, I believe I feel better. And it could happen quickly, within a week. Actually, within 24 hours, possibly. And so that anecdotal evidence certainly is going to be something that sticks with physicians. Now, if 35 to 55% are getting better, that means more than half of people are not, which is significant. Here's some more biases that exist, especially for us as healthcare professionals, in some way, you're going to have a bias, either into skewing yourself towards the positive or towards the negative based on your personality and a lot of attributes. Let's say 
40% of your clients are coming and are saying, you know, doc, yeah, this, you know, I feel better. Thank you so much better. That might stick out in the minds of, of certain physicians compared to other ones, such as um, if you have this bias towards wanting to remember positive experiences in your relation to the work that you're doing and minimize or dismiss the negative ones. And the question also then uh, is played out. Let's imagine that you are prescribed that drug from your, your family physician in a short amount of time. And it's really challenging to sometimes get an appointment. What about the personality of the person who just stops taking the drug because it didn't make them feel well, but because of their own personality attributes, they tell the doctor anyway that, yes, thank you, it helped. This is a phenomenon that we do not discuss enough in clinical practice. So you mean they, they lie to their doctor because they don't want the conflict? Conflict avoidance, wanting to be a good patient. Mm. This is something that, if you therapists are out there, you've certainly heard this. You, you hear this in your clinical work. Scared that the, the, that the doctor would be disappointed in them. Um, they don't want to be different. They don't want to stand out. There's so many factors why someone might avoid the conflict and just tell a doctor they did what they told them to do. I've done that at a restaurant. How was the food? I was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. So it's just a phenomenon, right, of, of human beings, like avoiding conflict, not wanting the conflict, wanting to be a good patient. So, I mean, that's part of the anecdotal evidence and the urban legend that goes around. To me, I want to stay with the hard science. If we really look at, at this data, I don't think anyone who's examined it in a meaningful way can say, this drug outperforms placebo. And you have to look at the trials that were not published. And I go back to uh, 2007 when the New England Journal of Medicine pretty much made the statement that antidepressants are placebos with side effects when you look at the non-published literature. And so that phenomenon has to be identified as something that we talk about as social scientists. What about the non-published literature? Don't just look at what got published. And even when we look at what got published and you examine meta-analyses, in the meta-analyses, the the difference from the placebo group to the drug group really does not provide any real-world benefits. There's no clinical relevance. So you use these outcome measures, these self-report outcome measures to determine the effect of an antidepressant. Remember, there's no blood test. There's no MRI. There's nothing hard. You're just looking at the, the outcome of the patient. I'm not dismissing that. It's important, but it's a checklist they're filling out. And the differences in these self-report measures are like 2 to 2.5 points from the placebo group to the antidepressant group. Now, you might be able to identify a statistical difference by just two points, but it has no real-world clinical relevance. Two points on a depression scale would not mean anything to me as a clinical psychologist, and we can't attribute it to the drug either. could be just attributed to the fact that there, uh, there's patient differences. So it has no real-world relevance. None of this matters, Sean, if the drug did not have adverse consequences. Mm -hmm. So 
listen, if you if you come to the conclusion that 50 35 to 55% of people who are experiencing depression can start feeling better by taking this drug and who knows if it's the drug or something else, then I don't think I would be that concerned. However, the consequences are becoming more and more severe the more attention that we place on them, the more we study them, the more feedback we get globally around people who've been on antidepressants. My job here is to stop lying, stop information that hasn't been scientifically proven. How can you trust your healthcare professionals? How can you trust the field of clinical psychiatry, clinical psychology, the field in which I'm part of? How do we trust it if we don't have clear information that allows people to make an informed decision? You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility that you give people information that's been proven by scientific data. Science is not a word to be hijacked to use to your advantage. Science is an evolving process that continues through the exploration of this data and continued studying of patient populations, both short-term and long-term. Science evolves. Yes, the science was hijacked by the pharmaceutical industry. And it was presented to the American public and the Western world with a sophistication of advanced media marketing and the hiring of academics to promote this as science. If we've learned anything post-pandemic, what we've learned is that you understand what science is. Someone who's financially or politically invested in a certain intervention is not somebody we can trust. We have, at this point, unlimited information through the use of the internet. For first time in history, the medical professionals or those who are in an expert professional class They've always been accepted as the ones who have all the information. They've put in the study. They've put in the work. And I'm not denying that. I've put in the work too. But we can do the same research ourselves and we can challenge our medical professionals, especially when it comes to risks and benefits. So the idea of an amplified placebo response being communicated as the drug agent is, providing, uh, is presenting that is false. The second thing about why people might report that antidepressant work is the emotional numbing effect of the drug. The most common reported response to antidepressants is emotional numbing. So what does that mean? It depresses affect. So it's a blunting or a numbing. You're feeling less. Some people report feeling nothing, even positive emotions. And as we've discussed on this podcast, that numbing or blunting can also be blunting of the genitals. People experience post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. That is a side effect 
that is common. So you're not just numbing the negative emotions, you're numbing all emotions. Some people report feeling dead inside. Some people report feeling disconnected. There's loss of libido. Now, the possibility exists that there are a small percentage of people who will view that experience as therapeutic. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that would be the individuals who are experiencing the highest level of negative emotional intensity. High distress, high agitation, high pain. If you think about that, the emotional numbing or deadening of emotions could be a welcome respite from that pain. Would that be somebody who could be manic? Or is that what you're talking about, something that's more um, almost permanent in nature? No, that's not what mania is not usually a high-intensity negative emotion. Mania is generally a high-intensity positive emotion, high energy, Mm -hmm. feeling grandiose, decreased need for sleep. And since antidepressants can induce mania, we have to be very careful. Mm. Um, But some people experience high agitation or irritability. We think that's akathisia, another side effect. But I would think, like, let's say the... The discussion point that you may have from a medical professional who has prescribed antidepressants for most of their career, they might say, well, these things are a useful tool for the most severe depressed individuals. And there is some controversial evidence that suggests that the those who skew on the most severe range might have a greatest effect or a greater response to an antidepressant. In my investigation, it's still not significant enough to outweigh any of these adverse consequences, and it's not clinically relevant enough. So here's the problem that we have now in the, in the field. Antidepressant prescriptions are on the rise. They were promoted as a drug that corrects a chemical imbalance of serotonin. That was the, that was the promotion. SSRI. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor Mm -hmm. around the theory that people become depressed due to deficiency in serotonin. So people believe that there was something biochemically wrong with them, still millions do. And so you take this drug, they believe they're correcting something. So that belief matters. But now that we know that depression isn't associated, simplified through this chemical imbalance myth. In fact, we've known this for decades but a recent review paper this summer kind of put a lot of this to to rest because it took in all the scientific data over 30 40 years that it really does not have anything to do with serotonin so you are going to be targeting the reuptake of serotonin and you are altering brain chemistry but for what response for what reaction and so the the doctors who've been prescribing these drugs are now saying things it's it's almost like i feel like we are we're part of this mass manipulation. They're saying, well, we don't know how they work. We just know they work. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that's not how I make decisions based on my health. And I wouldn't want to do that for my patients or my loved ones. Yeah, if a drug was developed to perform a certain function in the body, SSRI, and that has no connection at all to depression, and now they don't know how it works, 
They're just saying, trust me. <laughs> trust me. And we just know it works. And that goes back to that anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I hope people can great, better understand what a placebo response is and how powerful that is. And that's going to lead to people reporting that it's, that it's helping them. At this point, wouldn't that be the only logical explanation? I believe so. Now, the other part is the emotional numbing. So when we're talking about short-term, because that's, the, that's what we come down to, because even the trials, Sean, are only about six to eight weeks. When we talk about short-term, emotional numbing might be, have some effect. Let's say someone is going through something that is, is really difficult and challenging for them, and they're in a lot of emotional pain and they can't cope. Is it possible, is it reasonable that somebody can numb out emotions and that can temporarily help them maybe face something and solve something? A reasonable person can say yes, and I'm a reasonable person. The possibility exists. I don't want to dismiss that. But patients aren't informed of that. That's not how they're communicated that the drug works. You know, we have to look at this in a manner of which psychoactive substances induce a response. So if you had social anxiety, Sean, Mm -hmm. really bad social anxiety, it was hard for you to be out in public. I never leave this studio. But let's say that, you know, we give you some alcohol. All right. And you have a couple drinks. Got me. It's Super Bowl Sunday. You have a couple drinks. Actually, we have to say big game, right? (laughs) Why? I don't know, because it's like trademarked. Oh, is it? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, jeez. So we give you, you're in college now, you know, you, you've really struggled with social anxiety. It's hard to get a conversation going. You're not really fun. You're avoiding eye contact. It's hard for you to form relationships. Mm-hmm. You're fearing embar- embarrassing yourself. You have poor social skills. Check, check, check. Okay. You go out, you get this, you have a couple drinks and all of a sudden you're able to have a conversation. In the life of the party. You're funny. All that anxiety diminishes. You start having conversations with girls. Would we say that alcohol is a treatment for social anxiety? No. But in this symptom management world, right, if you think about mental health as, and emotions as symptoms and then treatment is the reduction of symptoms, well, in the short term, alcohol does reduce social anxiety symptoms. It's not that dissimilar in how these clinical trials are set up around anxiety and depression. They're looking to get some response initially in the short term to decrease a symptom on a symptom measure. That doesn't mean it's anti-depression. Anti-depression is complex. Antidepressant is a prolonged episode over time. You'd have to be able to measure this three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months down the road. And that doesn't exist. It does not exist. Remember, we um, one of our earliest discussions, we jumped into the pamphlets inside um, anti, uh, or SSSR, SSRIs, and the clinical data that's within there is only eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Nothing Pur- more. That's purposeful. Okay. And then you have doctors, more urban legend, if people don't get a response and six to eight weeks they'll say well it takes this it takes longer for this to kick in what's now that why based do, on why do they say that because that's what the drug reps told them so imagine if you're a drug company and you're trying to sell this drug but there even though there's no data to support it the drug reps would that would be kind of like overcoming an objection 
So it's like a sales technique. It is a sales technique. And then the doctors take it as science. They do. Because this is how powerful the pharmaceutical industry is. Not only are they in our primary care centers and developing relationships with these doctors, but they're also funding continuing medical education. They're also funding the development of textbooks. So it's such a powerful system, and that's why I want to communicate to patients out there. I'm not saying that your physician is incompetent. The overwhelming amount of physicians want to do a really good job, care about their patients, and are working in the best interest of their patients. It's just their best available evidence. They become very protocol-driven. Is suggesting they should follow these steps. And they are told that this is best available evidence. They are not experts in this area. They can't be because they have to be experts in every area. That's right. They're general they're, practitioners they're, for the most part. They're gatekeepers. And then you look at the field of clinical psychiatry. They sold out to the pharmaceutical industry decades ago. Their entire profession is supported by the pharmaceutical industry. They don't have expertise outside the prescription drug world. Because if they're going to use more behavioral interventions and do other aspects within the field of, of behavioral health or mental health, psychologists you know, focus their entire occupation and learning about those interventions. I'm not saying that we don't need more. I mean, we do need psychiatrists and other medical professionals and counselors to be able to understand empirically validated behavioral treatments. But they've honed themselves in a medical specialty of the use of psychiatric drugs. So there's an inherent bias there and, in a, and a conflict that we cannot dismiss. So if you look at when, if the patient is saying they saved my life, it's because they believe it saved their life. And I'm not saying you have to stop your antidepressant. I'm not saying everyone pull antidepressants off the market. I'm saying we have to be informed. So if there is a short-term anxiolytic effect, something that's emotional, emotionally sedating or numbing, and you're informed of the risks, and you're in a lot of emotional pain, and, someone, and you want to take an antidepressant, you should have every right to do so. But you should do so while being informed. If you as a physician believe in the placebo effect and question whether an antidepressant is anything more than that, then you have a responsibility to inform the patient that, I, that this is a placebo response. And there's going to be these consequences, and we want to monitor this. So people ask, well, Dr. McFillin, do you support psychiatric drugs in any capacity, or are you against all psychiatric drugs? I believe psychiatric drugs, including antidepressants, if ever used, should be rare, short-term, and with informed consent obtained. So it makes sense, folks, if you believe that antidepressants have saved your life, great, you're alive and you feel better. 
you should be informed that there's really no evidence that the longer you're on this drug or that you have to be on this drug for the rest of your life. The longer you're on it, the higher the likelihood of adverse consequences. We do not have research that supports that you have to be on this drug long term. So if you stop taking this drug abruptly, you will experience horrific withdrawal for the most part. I mean, I don't want to say horrific. Some people experience horrific withdrawal. You will experience withdrawal symptoms. That is not your depression returning. That is you withdrawing from the drug. This is information that we have to be able to openly talk about in American society. If you just used science to guide clinical interventions, then we would be seeing right now the decrease in prescribing. It would, it would be rare. But Sean, that's not what is happening. Mm-hmm. It's increasing. And it's increasing to populations where we don't have safety or efficacy, like young people under the age of 25. I don't know if you, you've seen it, um, maybe through social media or even in the news. Carl Sagan... There was a quote he was talking about science it was from 1996. It was right before he passed away. I just pulled up one piece of it because it's kind of a long interview. He said, science is a way to call the bluff of those who only pretend knowledge. It is a bulwark against mysticism, against superstition, against religion misapplied to where it has no business being. If we're true to its values, it can tell us when we're being lied to. It provides a mid-course correction to our mistakes. I'll include a link to that because it's a much longer conversation and, and there's a lot in there, but it's all about the scientific process. I love that. I love that. And it's such a huge flag to me when, when you see these uh, physicians just using ad hominem attacks for those who point out the problems with the science that exists for antidepressants and the harm that it's created. Because that just tells me you're way too attached to the idea of antidepressants. And in most cases, your profession uh, depends on it. And that's a conflict that we're, have, we're going to have to overcome if we're going to be able to move forward as an American society to think about our health in more effective ways. So let me, let me just kind of step back and review. Yes, people are going to report that they feel better on antidepressants. It's going to be a combination of two things, an amplified placebo response and emotional numbing. Emotional numbing, though, in my perspective, is certainly not, it's not healthcare. It is a, potentially a short-term response to any crisis situation. So there are some short-term, very short-term benefits to taking a, a psychiatric drug when you're in some form of an episode especially when we think about a bipolar illness, if somebody is really severely, severely depressed or or really manic, the short-term stabilization of an episode can be life-changing. But again, rare, very rare. And these drugs are now widely prescribed to people way outside those bounds of that clinical severity. They're being, they're being applied to, to children and teens. They're being applied to women who are breastfeeding postpartum, they're being applied to premenstrual dysphoria, even though that's clearly a hormonal response and a hormonal condition where, again, playing Russian roulette with somebody's brain chemistry. 
it's being a it's being used for anxiety it's being used for pain it's being used for eating disorders anorexia all outside the bounds of sound science and so yes everybody out there there's a good reason why you may believe that it helped you for a period of time and i'm not even going to dismiss that as as a response However, you need to be aware of the risks of being on this drug for long-term. What's long-term? For me, it's more than six to eight weeks. More than six to eight weeks. And you have to be very closely monitored in those six to eight weeks because of the risk. The risk to a suicide event, akathisia, worsening mood, sexual dysfunction, potential for psychosis, potential for mania. Those are legitimate, published, Adverse consequences that are minimized in our healthcare settings. They're minimized in our healthcare settings because if they were more widely accepted and more widely known, that would have a significant impact on the bottom line of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Go back, listen to episodes 48, Chemical Imbalance Revisited, 53, Kim Witzak, 55, post antidepressant sexual dysfunction and then um also about uh akathisia uh, 64 with chris page there's a lot there that for anybody you're going to pause some of the biggest challenges that i have i'm doing this in my consulting work right now is that a lot of therapists are recommending antidepressants therapists who've done no work in this area who do not understand the risks or the benefits you mean psychologists? Psychologists, counselors, social workers. They are recommending these drugs. There's a lot of platforms right now where that's, you know, you, you can go online, you get a psychiatrist to acknowledge that you're in a depressive situation and they give you a medication and then they move you down the line to speak with a, a therapist and it's all integrated into one platform. And... They're broad now, and I keep getting ads served to them all the time. I, I'm, I have a Hulu, and I keep seeing for him all these ads, and yeah. I can just go onto an app, get a, uh, a psychiatrist to send me a prescription, and then set up an appointment with a therapist. Yeah, it's legalized drug dealing. Right? You can go in there. You can get your, your blue pill for your, your sexual dysfunction. You can get your antidepressant. Mm-hmm. You can get your benzo. Yeah, you know, all those drugs, I mean, very easily accessible under the guise that that you're doing something for your mental health, but you're destroying your mental health and your physical health in the long run. But they will do whatever they can to try to get that, get you hooked on that drug short term around a lot of these ideas. Healthcare, 2023, United States. I always... There's always going to be that one objection, though, that you're going to continue to get. Yeah, yeah, but that's not me. It worked for me. Yeah, that, that's the question. I'll continue to get it. And boy, why do we dismiss the placebo response to mind-body connection here in Western culture? You know, why is that so easily dismissed? It's, it's, it's almost as if that person believes it illegitimizes their, their condition. Yeah, because the other way is an explanation. The other one, it's hard to understand. And I, and I also think that that there's a lot of shame that's associated with struggling with your mental health and the idea that it could be outside of your control. 
like you were born into it, that it's biologically ingrained and that there's something that you can do to correct it. That certainly is an idea that serves a lot of people because if you look at it at another way, like the emotional pain and the struggle that you're in becomes a opportunity in your life to, to grow and to solve problems and to face pain and tragedy, then that puts a lot of responsibility on you to make changes. And not everyone might have the belief in themselves to do that. That's not denying that, that people are victimized in this world. You know, you grow up in an, an abusive environment. You had to face trauma that's going to have an impact on how you live, how you see the world, how you feel. We're not denying the emotional pain. It's just our focus is on what is recovery. How do people overcome that? And I put out a tweet today that says that it's really important for us in the field that for us to study those who are the most resilient, who demonstrate uh, resiliency, have overcome challenges in their life. We should study, learn, and understand the attributes and characteristics of those people and be able to have that part of an educational curriculum, have it part of the mental health field. Instead, there seems to be such widespread messaging to, to devalue people's capacities and capabilities. I think we're just creating a dependency on a sick care system. And so people don't get this alternative information. We're not building people up. We're not supporting people. We're victimizing people. And we're telling them they're sick. And we're creating a dependency on the sick care system, mostly through pharmaceutical drugs. And it's these ideas are what we have to combat against. This is what I'm dedicating my career to at this time. This is what I'm passionate about. Because those ideas infiltrate our culture on... on Every aspect from how we approach our work, how we approach our relationships, how we approach each other. It's part of the entire kind of woke culture that's, that's being promulgated in American society that you no longer have the power to create a life worth living for yourself. You are influenced by an oppressor. And I don't think that's the steps that we take to overcome oppression when it does exist. I have this conversation today on antidepressants because we do live in an oppressive medical system where information is being censored and kept from our physicians and kept from the general public. And so we have to have that, this conversation to talk about risks, harms, benefits, and support you in being able to make your decisions outside authoritarian or medical establishment control. You have to be able to have these conversations in communities with people that we trust and then retake the scientific process back away from industry-run trials, government-driven trials. Science is going to have to be more of a grassroots effort from people who are dedicated to the process and understand that it's ongoing. Anyone who's going to say that there's, especially in mental health, that these are established scientific understandings and we know them to be facts now. They're lying to you. Mental health is so complex. The human experience is so complex. The placebo, the, the placebo response is mysterious. We have so much to learn 
about the mind-body connection. So much to learn. So don't dismiss the placebo response. I see it in my therapy. I've talked about it. There's a placebo response to coming in and talking to me. I haven't done anything. We haven't done anything yet in the therapy. But people get better just from taking that step. Establishes hope. A belief they can get better. It increases motivation. Changes the way we think about our life. The idea of taking steps to improve your health is health promoting. Think about that. The belief that you can get better, the idea that you're going to do something changes your conscious awareness and your attention. Don't dismiss that. If you're going to look for validation, overcoming a struggle through some external means, through a drug, I'm telling you that in the long run, that idea will put you right back on the merry-go-round. You're going to stay stuck, as many people have done, because they're just going to look for the higher dose or the next drug as they get stuck in the system, believing that there is some fix to the medical condition that they have. It's just not fair to communicate that to people when it's not realistic. But we can talk about it in more realistic terms. Stabilization, short term, this might help you right now. There's a good chance it doesn't. There's really harmful effects. You have other options. There are safer options. And this is where we have to move forward in our field. Clear, direct information based on science, based on common sense, based on logic, honesty, integrity at the highest level. No more urban legends. No more anecdotal evidence. Give it to people straight. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call one 800 273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.